0: You can earn up to 0.8 advanced ASHA CEUs if you are or you become a member of the MedSLP Collective, and the recording is also available inside of the Collective. Ready to scale your clinical skills? Go to MedSLPCollective.com forward slash summit to register today. In this episode of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, we have Dr. Dina Ferguson. She is the owner of Tubes to Tables Incorporated with 24 years of clinical practice experience. Her research interests include assessing and treating premature infant feeding and swallowing differences and treating sensory-based feeding disorders. In addition, she trains new clinicians and parents to conquer feeding issues in infants and toddlers. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good morning, Nina. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This is very exciting for me. Yeah, yeah, we're excited to have you. So tell the people a little bit about yourself if they don't know who you are.
1: I am Nina Ferguson. I am a pediatric speech language pathologist. I specialize in neonatal feeding and swallowing, primarily that and sensory um, feeding issues. So that's kind of who I am. I own a therapy company that works primarily with kids, transitioning them off of G-tubes, helping parents learn to feed their children. Awesome. Awesome.
0: All right, so where where should we start? I'd sort of love to hear about how you started in adults and transitioned to PEDS and sort of your your new one. Yeah, yeah.
1: it's a it's a pretty interesting story. So I was in graduate school and I only wanted to do adults. That's the reason I came into speech pathology. In fact, um, I didn't even know speech pathologists did anything but swallowing when I entered graduate school and I'm, I'm my graduate director sent me to take a parts of speech test or something. And I'm like, "What does parts of speech have to do with swallowing? And he's like, Oh, what do you think a speech language pathologist does? I was like, so when do we learn swallowing? He's like, you know, you get a couple of courses at the end of neuromotor. And I'm like, Oh, like I had thought I made the wrong choice. Right. But I was like, well, I'm here now. So I'm going for it. Yeah. So that's kind of my start. I only wanted to do adults. It's what I loved. And so um, fast forward, you know, I did almost everything we can do in our profession fast forward just a little bit. And I had kids and I was like, Oh, these guys aren't that scary. And then I found the NICU, which is my absolute love. So because I started my career in the adult world, I knew all the research. I knew every research study out there that showed us signs and symptoms of aspiration in the adult population. And so when I transitioned over and I started looking at all the literature, and um I was like, where's where's all the literature? Like, where's where's all the information? And I kept saying, I can't, there's not any. There's, there's this just doesn't exist. And so I knew clinically after working, I worked in the NICU like 13, 14 years, and I knew. I knew what I saw that I felt this is a sign of aspiration. I knew what in my gut felt like these babies are aspirating, but we didn't have the data. And so after all those years, I was like, well, I guess I'll go learn to do research. (laughs) That's how I ended up after all these years, right? Struggling to get people to kind of understand these babies are in distress. They're, they're, not breathing well, they're they're all of these signs that we're seeing is not just them learning to eat. And that's what I was told a lot of times by several NICU professionals. Is that's just what they do. That's just how, how they learn to eat. And I'm like, oh no, that's not what they do. Yeah. No, yeah. <laughs> so that's kind of where I started and kind of how I went from adults into pediatrics into the NICU. And then realized we don't have good data we don't know what the signs and symptoms of aspiration are in this population
0: yeah yeah you're you're speaking to my soul nina i my son was in the nicu for 15 days and the only reason he was still there was feeding issues And I just kept saying, well, what, what are we working towards? What is the goal here? And they're like, well, he'll just learn. He'll just figure it out. And I was like, something tells me they don't just figure it out without any sort of intervention. So.
1: Yeah. And that was always, even me as a new clinician coming in and, and, you know, I'm, I'm quite a bit older than you. So like the, what we got in our education programs were a lot less than even what they get today. Okay. And I still don't think a lot of programs even have pediatric feeding. And when you look at nursing curriculums and you look at physician curriculums, they don't they don't cover this. This is not something that they're taught. And so I think a lot of times it's left to culture, right? And so I'm an I'm an NICU history buff a little bit. Like I love the history of the NICU. It's pretty fascinating. My husband's gave me um a real print of the, I think it was the 1934 World's Fair, where in order to pay for isolates, they they did a freak show of babies and put like you could go through and pay your tickets to go see the babies in incubators, preterm infants in incubators. And I was like, oh my gosh! And so, it, so I became completely obsessed with NICU history. Yeah,
0: <laughs> it's crazy. My, my mom was a NICU nurse for 40 years, so I'll have to ask her if she learned all about. Oh, my gosh.
1: Look it up. The 1934, World think, oh was there. It's, oh, it's, it's crazy. It's it's like, what? That's how they got the money to pay for, um. I guess, incubators, like upgrading and, and making it, it. I could go on that forever. But anyway, so I think it's interesting that nurses, actually, when you look at the history, since your mom's an NIC, you know, she might know this or might not. But Um, nurses are the reason we have NICUs because back in the 1800s, late 1800s, early 1900s, these babies were weaklings and they were just sent home in boxes to die because they were weaklings. And so, um, nurses took the charge. So you see in the, in the history that nurses really took the charge of teaching these weaklings. And I think a lot of the culture is the reason it is, it's because they still have the mentality of these babies as weaklings. And so when you look at that culture of the baby being weak, that has been translated into weak sucking, right? Mm-hmm. Or weak swallowing. And if you look at development, what we know is they suck in utero at 14 weeks. They swallow in utero at 14 weeks. What they don't do is breathe, right? Mm-hmm. So the weakling mentality, we need to help them, I think, has been um, the, the, it's an arid premise. And so the help comes in terms of helping them suck. Yeah. Right. And that's not what they, they need help breathing. Yeah, which is, it's
0: fascinating to me as to why
1: we see some of the things we see.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes total sense. I just, I mean, I still think, you know, you don't forget these things, but I think of holding my, my little man and, you know, different mouth postures, they were having a stew and different positionings and feedings with the bottle, but same thing, he would just go blue. Like he just couldn't breathe. He had no suck swallow coordination and Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so
1: it's it's just a very interesting history that that I think once we understand where another discipline comes from and their history and their culture, I think it helps us communicate better. Yeah, absolutely. But we still didn't have any literature (laughs) um, for me to be able to say, hey, read this. You know, I think we had um, there's a DiMatteo article, I think, in 2005. We're I think as a 2009 2011 where we look at what are, and they have some subspecialties out of those those research articles about preterm infant signs of aspiration. I think Suter and Leader, I don't remember the year, had a subset of, you know, what does this look like? And then I, when I went into my PhD, I had this lofty goal of like, I'm going to do the screening of all screenings that's going to be able to screen babies for, for you know, risks of aspiration, right? And of course, my... Wonderful Dr. Estes was like, well, that's a big job. Let's start small. (laughs) She knew I'd be in my PhD for 10 years. So we really started with a retrospective study. And that was where I started figuring out there's just not a lot. Hadley All's synaptic theory of neurodevelopment is like my Bible. It's what I live by. And so, yeah, like it's amazing. So I took... Her information about neurodevelopment and looked at physiology. What are the signs could possibly be? What, what could they be? So in, in my study, I, I broke it out into what I consider behavioral variables, like gulping, shutdown, changes in muscle tone, these things that babies do when they're disorganized that it's not necessarily that they're they're turning blue yet, but they do these behaviors before they kind of turn blue and their heart rate drops and they go apneic and all of these things. So those bigger, what I call bigger, more severe variables were physiologic. And so I really wanted to know, can we look for signs of aspiration in preterm infants based on what Hadley Sauls was saying in some of her research and what we know about behavior? So that's where I started in my PhD started my pre dissertation work. And so it was very interesting what we found. Like it was, it was very interesting. I started with 270 charts. By the time I found enough charts to whittle down to babies who had modified barium swallows, where the nurses documented it ended up being 41 babies. I was like, Oh, wow. My end just went, I was going to say maybe like 20. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it tanked. And I was like, I was in it. Right. I was in it. So I'm like, well, I'm doing this. Cause I really want to know this answer. I think nursing documentation. And then if you can look at nursing documentation, I, I took 14 days before babies went in for a modified bear swallow. Clearly we're going to see they got referred for a reason. These are all babies who got referred. These are all babies who did a modified barium swallow so that the documentation was a problem. But we were able to figure out that babies who the nurses were documenting desaturation and coughing in that 14-day period were more likely to be in an aspiration group than a non-aspiration group, right? In fact, they were eight times, 8.7 times, I think, more likely to be in the aspiration group, which... To me, with such a small sample, to get such a big likelihood ratio,
0: oh, that was meaningful, right? Was, yeah, yeah, It yeah. was meaningful. I was like, okay, we've got coughing, and we've got yeah, Nothing about statistics excites me, but that would excite me. That excites me, right?
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm, I do, I do enjoy statistics, but I like getting the answer to my question and then writing it up. It's always my chore, sure. but. Yeah, eight times if the nurses were documented in such a small sample was tachypnea was about, I think, 2.15. It was not, didn't quite meet likelihood ratios. I think, um, if I remember correctly, is like about three is meaningful and above. So while tachypnea didn't quite make it, which is breathing fast, you know, if they're breathing fast, which to me, I mean, that makes sense if the baby's breathing fast. And they don't have time to swallow. Like they've got to breathe in and out. And I think it's loud. I remember what year she published her study that talked about if babies are breathing 60 times a minute and their swallow takes 0.3 to 0.7 seconds. Like they don't have enough time to breathe in and out if they don't have the lung reserves. Right. So I don't remember what year that study was, but I mean, that to me was powerful as well. So it was it was eye-opening for me with such a small sample. And what was even more interesting to me was the fact that I wanted to throw the statistical normative, all that stuff out. I just wanted to look at, okay, I only have 41 babies. But if I said every behavior doesn't matter which baby. So one baby may desaturate three times, may have, you know, You know, however, if I just look at behaviors, forget independence, forget all that stuff, do I see any patterns? Right. And so to me, that was the most interesting part of the study because what, okay, so what I found to be most interesting is that of all the markers that we looked at, there were only 29 in the behavioral. So nurses weren't documenting shutdown, drooling, changes of muscle tone, gulping. Not very often, right? They spent more time documenting those physiological coughing, apnea, desaturation, bradycardia, color change to ketmia, right? But what they spent the absolute most time documenting was if if is was baby has problems eating, right? So those babies that they documented the most on were the vomiting babies, the babies that vomited, right? So if the nurses said the baby had a difficult time eating, then Those were the babies that vomited. So in my groups, we looked at babies who aspirated on modified barium swallows, babies who did not aspirate on modified barium swallows, and then babies who did not aspirate on upper GI, but were fed with a bottle. Because that all upper GIs use a bottle. And so there was some documentation about the pharyngeal swallow.
0: How did you differentiate between like vomiting and just like normal baby spit up?
1: Um, Well, it was documented in the chart. Lots of emesis, they were... So that's how we did it. We looked at, so then in the nursing documentation, it was, they were, they were sent for upper GI because there were some concerns because of the excessive amount of vomiting. So the reason for the upper GI was looking there. So that's how we, we tried, it was trying like a, a semi-control group is what I was using it as, right? So nursing documentation was most of the time when babies were throwing up, I'm like, well, they're changing them. <laughs> they're not, they're not keeping the volume in. This is when nurses were saying this baby has a feeding problem. Yeah. This is those, those upper GI babies, right. Which I found really fascinating. And then the other thing I found fascinating when you looked at of the babies who aspirated, like of the group, you just look at the group of babies who aspirated what were nurses documenting coughing and desaturation. So then we also have studies out of story, Dr. Thorey is a nurse who did a study that said, if you turn up the oxygen, you treat desaturation. I don't know if they did it with your baby, if your baby's on oxygen or not, but it's very common in the NICU to turn up the oxygen during feeding to treat desaturation. And I was like, we're not, we're not treating the right thing. Like we're treating the symptom. What's causing these babies to desaturate during feeding when they're not necessarily desaturating other times. And so I found that very interesting that the application of a very well-done study, in my opinion, I love Dr. Thore, um, is being used as a treatment that could be masking, in my opinion, this is my opinion, aspiration, because that would make common sense, right? I definitely would like to see more study on that. But out of my data and putting pieces of the puzzle together in my mind, I mean, this is me, right? That's kind of what I... I've that's, we're turning up the oxygen and sending babies home who aspirate. Yeah.
0: Yeah. What I sort of just like, it was sort of just like explained to me that like, we have to do whatever possible to like get nutrition into these babies so that they'll get stronger. And basically if they get stronger, it'll help their breathing and respiratory system. And I was like, I, it, that sort of sounds logical, but like my theoretical brain is like, is flashing red right now. Like
1: I, (laughs) yeah. And you have those hormones and emotions and trauma going on with your baby in the NICU. And yeah, that's backwards to me. I mean, we protect breathing first. That's our job. I mean, we are feeding therapists, Jess, but I don't care who you work with. We have to protect breathing first, nutrition second, and then we can worry about learning to eat. That should be the way we think. And it's not always the way well-intentioned caregivers think, is my opinion. And I'll profess profess everything is this is my based on what I know about the literature and based on what I know in practice. And so when you look at what became even more interesting to me when I looked at my data is when you look at the babies who did not aspirate. What were the behaviors that nurses were documenting on my group of babies who did not aspirate? Okay. They were documenting apnea, bradycardia, and cyanosis. These were the babies who were dying to protect their airway. These are the babies who had the ability to clamp down their airway and maybe not necessarily recover because they didn't have the neurologic integrity to come back, right? But they clamped down their airway and nothing got in. But they literally were dying to protect their airway. So guess who got to stay in the NICU longer? The babies who were scaring the heck out of everybody because they were turning blue, heart rate dropping. But their airway, in my in my data, the airway was protected on modified barren swallows. Interesting. So we kept the babies in the NICU that were protecting their airway because they were having physiological declines, we discharged babies on oxygen who were aspirating. Interesting. And I'm like, what's going on? Like, what's going on with this data? Like, I was I was blown away with just looking at these patterns. Now, of course, there needs to be more rigorous studies done to see if this is like, would shake out in a, in a very controlled study. But just looking at the patterns kind of blew me away. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's kind of where... These variables came from, for me, from the synactive theory, from my experience, from parceling out, looking at things a little differently in terms of patterns um, so that we can get more information on what are the true signs of disorganization that then leads to potential aspiration for these babies who really shouldn't be born yet, much less coordinating suckings following everything, <laughs> right? So that was pretty interesting for me.
0: Wow. That's that's so fascinating, Nina.
1: I I know, kind of mind-blowing. Yeah. So from this study then, of course, was my my pre-dissertation work, because normally in in doctoral studies you do two. One is kind of practice, I guess, and the other one is the real thing.
0: <laughs> Your training wheels are off
1: now. Both are equally stressful. It doesn't matter. Um I will tell you private practice was much harder than a PhD though. So I hats off to everybody who runs a big private practice hats off. It's so much more stressful than a PhD. But so when I went into my dissertation um, ideas, of course I had these big grandiose ideas and my faculty advisors like, you're going to be here 20 years. If this is what you want to do, you're going to have to do something. <laughs> <smaller."> <laughs> I'm like, okay. Okay, fine. So she's have you ever seen our simulator infant? And I'm like, What's that? You know, I didn't even know simulators existed. So she took me to the sim lab and introduced me to baby Hal, which was a sim. I was like, oh, my gosh, baby Hal turns blue and he does all these fantastic things. So we were able to put together scenarios out of my experience in the NICU and program them into this simulator input. And then we were able to put together a video recorded um, lecture using the simulated behaviors to train new nurses and new therapists right and see if they were better able to recognize these signs of distress in babies if they had gone through this video simulation training than just looking at book and lecture so half of my group nurses and speech pathologists together just did a book and lecture, just did the traditional thing. The other group did this video recorded simulation. Video recorded simulation did so much better at recognizing, just recognizing signs of distress the increased risk of aspiration based on what they were taught and referrals. They were so much better. And so this is my dissertation work. So I have these scenarios that were recorded, this beautiful thing that proved, Hey, this is great for novel learners and didn't matter which discipline. And I was, like thrilled. So I was thinking, Oh, if they can do it with video recorded simulation, when I went to East Tennessee state university, um part of my startup package was the simulators, but they're going to do so much better when I put the baby in their hands. Right. I'm thinking this is going to be a rock star like thing. right? So of course I redid my, my, my study and I put the simulator in their hands and they all tanked. They couldn't remember anything. I was like, what just happened? How did they go from video recorded learning to doing great to when I give them a, 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 what I thought was a more real rich experience? None of them could remember anything. Interesting. And I was like, what just happened? And so, of course, I had to go back to the cognitive literature, the stress literature, the cognitive drop, even though it was a simulator. These students had this baby turning blue, didn't know what to do because that wasn't part of the learning. It was just recognize the distress. It wasn't what to do about it. They all flipped out, I guess, and stress caused their memory not to hold, which I found. We did three studies that way, different ways of putting it together. And I was like, no, video recorded simulation for new learners is better. Um, because there's not a stress component, um, which I found mind blowing. So that was kind of my dissertation work. Um, and then it kind of sat at my computer and I taught and I did my thing and didn't do anything with my scenarios. I kind of always thought this would be great to put out there for, for new students, new clinicians, you know, it would be kind of a uh, nice to have, right. But I was busy doing other things. And so I put it all together, but I just never did anything with it. And then, um, Six months before COVID hit, I started organizing this into a laboratory online that could be used as an adjunct kind of teaching for professors, because how many professors know preterm infant feeding is fine? Like, there's just not many of us. And so I was like, I'm, you know, I'm going to dilly dally with this and kind of put it together on the side and think about it. And so it sat there. COVID hit. And everybody was panicking because they couldn't get clinical hours, yeah. but you could get simulation clinical hours. And so, um, I had a colleague reach out to me panicking. Can you take students virtually in your doing telemedicine because they need hours? And so I'm like, sure. And she goes, what's up with the lab? And I'm like, it's done. It's just nobody. I haven't, I haven't, you know, they in my computer. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> so we, 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 I was like, sure they can take the lab. And then we started looking at, it was just as an experience. And then um we started looking into the capsid regulations for including these hours for part of their educational hours. And so that's how kind of my, my, I now offer the preterm infant feeding is following lab for universities. I think we have about 20 universities Amazing, and I get so much amazing, like amazing feedback from students. I had one student tell me while well, I was taking the lab, my best friend had a preterm infant, and I was able to help her. I'm like, "Well, that's oh, awesome! Yeah. Is that awesome?" Yeah. I was like, "Really?" And she's yeah. like, "So that just it made my day." So yeah, so looking at this, this moving forward, being able to really help new clinicians and help new students, and with this preterm infant world, that it's not something that is talked about. In graduate school, it's we just. I mean, it's nothing against nothing against our our grad programs. They are packed full of so much information. And if we wanted grad students to learn everything they need to know, which they think they need to know to practice, we would be in school for five years. And be, <laughs> there's, just, there's just not enough time. We give a foundation, which is our job, right? And then it's on the individual clinician to go and specialize and learn more. Which is why you know you guys do what you do. Um, so yeah, that's cool. That's kind of, um, like my transition from clinic to research, to teaching, to like all of these things that it's broadened my understanding of so many things that I never thought of for years. COVID was terrible for many people, but I, really believe there were hidden blessings. I, I agree. I completely agree. Yeah. I, I so I'll tell you something funny about me preparing for the summit. Um, you know, I love the way you guys did that. I lo- I need an editor on a regular basis. So I love the fact that you guys had our <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> was like, they have an editor. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I love editors. Thank you. And yes, so, of course <laughs> <laughs> this is fantastic. And so I would, you know, I have been doing what I now know has a label for years, this trauma, trauma centered care. Right. And so the editor comment on one of my slides, like, awesome, you're going to talk about trauma centered care. And I was like, I am. <laughs> so I had to go. To look it up. I was like. Oh, it's a real, it's a, it's a formed thing. Yeah. So
0: yeah I, I, I naively didn't know it was like a thing until like a few years ago or like even more recently than that. And I was like, oh, this makes a lot of sense now. Yeah. It's amazing. And so I've been doing, so I kind of laughed at
1: myself. I was like, yeah, I guess I am. So let me go make sure that I'm, you know, talking about it the right way. But I've been doing this for years and years and years. And I just didn't know it was a formal thing, but COVID like, man, I, What I always thought was interesting when I was in the NICU is moms would say, I'm going to have to take you home with me because you're the only one that can feed my baby. Yeah. And early on, I was like, oh, I'm great. You know, look at me. I can feed my baby. And it's an ego thing. It's a, you know, it's whatever. But it it felt like, oh yeah, I'm awesome. And then it hit me. No, dear. (laughs) You failed because you're not going home with that parent and you've just undermined their confidence. So you added to that trauma when you had that attitude. So making that switch in my mind early, like not super early, but, you know, in my career in the NICU, I think was huge for helping relieve some of that trauma and empower parents, which is now like probably 90% of what I do. I do nothing but empower parents.
0: Yeah. I think that was just so hard. Like with my Nick, with my son's Nick, you stay too. Cause I was just pumping constantly too. And so I think part of it was like, I would leave the bedside to go pump. I'd come back. I might've missed a doctor or a specialist that was there at the time. And so finally, when it was time to take him home, I was like, I do not know what I am doing. And they're like, Oh, you have these motherly instincts. And I'm like, I do not like <laughs> you guys have had him for 15 days. Like, I've done a few feedings, but like, I'm mostly in pumping when he's, when you guys are feeding him. like it was just such a traumatic, stressful time because it was like, you know, that the NICU has their, you know, hourly, they have to eat at this specific time. And if my boobs were leaking at that specific time, I could not be there for the at that time. So it was like so many moving parts to, you know, to do that. And I just remember feeling so... Like, I don't know what to do with this thing. Like, I don't know how to do see- your first baby. I'm just curious. Yep. Of course. Yeah. So <laughs> uh,
1: my first, so and say, I had C-sections with mine and my first baby, it was very, very different experiences. When I had my first baby, they took him. I was sent to recovery like four hours later when I was able to move or whatever, they brought me this tiny human that I was like, get it away from me. I don't want that. Like that is, that is, that is awful. And I did not bond with him. I was like, and I cried because I thought I was going to be this awful mom. And long story, the lactation came in and I was like, you want him to suck more life out of me? I'm like, no, like, I don't even want to do that. And of course, she calmed me down and coaxed me into it. About three days later, when they took him for an ultrasound, I didn't tell me my motherly things kicked in, right? But I I really thought I was gonna be a horrible mom. Absolutely the worst mom because I I I mean I cried because I had no connection. And that's just four hours. I can't even imagine these moms who have these babies whisked away to the NICU and they don't see them for days sometimes. Yeah. Like how do you how do you recover that bond that is that is that is ripped away? I I mean, I feel very heartbroken for them in a lot of ways. And, you know, learning that we can contribute to parent empowerment and what we do is very powerful when the parents light up, like I almost get teary about it. When parents light up, I did it. <gasps> Look, I mean, when they light up because they did it, it's, it's powerful. I'm going to cry. But anyway, make me cry. I don't want to cry either. <laughs> make me cry. But, I know. So it, it's interesting that then, you know, I go on get my PhD, teach, do all this stuff. And after I left Tennessee and came home and opened tubes to tables, I hate to say it. I went back to some old kids would come to me and parents would say, well, he'll eat for you, but he won't eat for us at home. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, here we go again. Like I'm, what's the What is going on? And I would have parents sit in with me. My parents weren't allowed to stay in the waiting room. They weren't allowed to be on their phones. They had to like, I did everything I could think of in my clinic to include them to impact. It would still, they'll eat for you, but they won't eat for me. And I kept banging my head and like, I don't even know what else to do. And so COVID hit, (laughs) more hidden blessings. I really think. And when we had to open the computer, like to see their environment, I was like, oh, whoa, hold on. You know, you got three dogs running around, the TV's blaring, like your other sibling is doing, I don't know what if they're in the cabinet, like there's no, like the environment is just totally, I was, I was shocked at so many environments. I, I opened the computer to parents going, oh, we don't have a table. Yeah, I'm like, oh, you don't have a table. Like, oh, little pieces of information that, you know, a picture's worth a thousand words. That I think we missed And Cole would allow that open up into their world and by coaching them through this new way we had to see parents flourish and kids that I've been working with for months now got better, faster, just because we were really able to put them in the true driver's seat and help them apply the therapy techniques every time a child ate. Like I, I... that's therapy every time a kid eats. That's not therapy three times a week for 30 minutes, <laughs> but <laughs> that's, that's therapy every time a child eats. And that to me with a lot of my patients was very powerful to see how quickly they, they improve. So this, this whole new way of, of thinking about things, I think is going to be very powerful. Yeah. 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 That's kind of some of my big revelations. One of my students laughed and you're the only professor that's ever told us that they failed. <laughs> Oh, we've all failed. What do you mean? If we haven't failed, we're not doing something right. Like it is part of life. Right. Like, of course, your professors have failed. I don't care which one you're talking about. The best professor in the whole world at some point has failed or they wouldn't be where they are. That's a thing. I think. So I always thought that was funny. Like, of course, we failed. We started where you are. That's mm-hmm. yep. awesome. I always think that's interesting when students say shock you with some comment that you're like, what? Of course we failed.
0: We're, we're human why you're here and why you do what you do. And yeah. Yeah. So I
1: don't know. I think looking at forward at research, I would really like to see a more prospective kind of look at what are this, what are the signs of aspiration? Like a, a, a like a redo the adult literature in the people world, like take what we know, what we learned in the adult world. And, and I know they're not little adults, but can we replicate how we learned what the signs and symptoms are, of aspiration in the adult world and look at it more in the pediatric world. And I know we do have people looking at things like the cough reflex, right? Like in in term babies, in term babies cough. I know that's that's coming out of um, a lab. That's coming at McGratton, out of McGratton's lab, right? So I love that she's looking at, you know, because just like in the adult world, you cough once doesn't mean you need to be NPO, right? But we do need to pay attention to what is the red, what are the red flags that we need to pay attention to so that babies don't aspirate for long periods of time and then become aversive, then failure to gain weight, which then turns into more aversion in the high chair, more stress, anxiety, picky eating. It comes, it comes to be, you know, this this eruption that lasts years. And so if we can figure some of that out a little bit earlier. I would love to see that prospective look at what are the signs of aspiration in preterm infants and even term infants. Like, what does that look like for that population? And I think it will come. It, it, it's going to take time. It will come. So, that's kind of where I would like to see more information start to come out of, of the literature for all those wonderful researchers out there who are doing research. <laughs> and, and I see you anymore, so it's, it won't be me, but I would really like to see that come out.
0: Yeah. What's what's next for you, Nina? What are you working on?
1: Um, I am still working on empowering parents. I'm I'm loving the preterm infant lab. I love, love, love. It's an adjunct to courses that, you know what? The professor doesn't have to worry about it. They, they students, they just sign up for the lab and I take it and I teach them. And I love that. I'm having so much fun with that. So much fun teaching students. Um, And the other thing I'm doing a lot of is educational programs for parents. So not only am I interested in teaching, teaching students, but I want to teach parents like you can do this. Like you can, you can totally do this. Like, this is not my husband always goes, it's, it's actually rocket science. I'm like, no, it's not like we can teach parents to do this. This is something that parents can learn to do and they can learn to do it so that they are then the adjunct to what they're learning from their therapist. Right. So launching courses for parents and, and letting them learn what we know so that they can advocate and feel empowered to advocate for their babies. Yeah. Awesome. So that's kind of what um I'm working on now is those courses for parents. Awesome. Awesome.
0: Yeah. That was one of the reasons I wrote my book too, because I just felt like, where do people even start? You know, it's just like people are diagnosed with dysphagia or swallowing disorders and it's just like, okay, now what? You know, so I just wanted to give people a place to at least start. So awesome. I love you doing those courses. Nina.
1: So that's kind of what's next for me is just looking at those courses and um, continuing to do my best to f- move forward in this profession and uh, give back as much as I can because it's I tell students like when I do graduation talks, like the people that you help will bless you so much more than you bless them. Yeah. It's powerful. Yeah. Um, what we do. And I think we all need to be proud of that and own that. And I still get parents that have like 14 year olds that now fifteen that send me pictures, look at them eating. I still get, he's now look what he's eating. I'm like, it's been like, 10, 12, 14 years since I've seen you. And I still get these these messages and these these and it's just to me, that's more than that's more to me than any financial reward or any whatever. It's it's means we've done a great job. And I think our profession is the best profession on type on the planet. So yeah, I love that.
0: Keep fighting for another day. I love it. <laughs> All right. Any um any final thoughts, Nina? Anything else you'd like to share with the people? No not really I mean I think I've kind of told you my story my experience with research um
1: where I think the profession needs to go um in terms of babies with the you know what I, I would like to see i I would really like to see our our profession embrace empowering parents and that now that I know it's a real thing um <laughs> trauma <laughs> center care um I love that I love it I love that that's now starting to come forward like it's it's starting to be recognized and as soon as we can take that and really put it into those well-intentioned caregivers that are in the NICU that are brilliant at saving babies and give them this understanding of you're, you're brilliant and you save these babies. And this is amazing, but there's more you can do by just understanding how truly traumatic it is to have a baby in the NICU. And it's, not helpful for you to say things that are undermining for parents. It's traumatizing for parents. And so while it may be well-intentioned, if you think about a little bit more, you will understand how traumatic it can be for those moms and those dads. Yep.
0: Yep. Very much so. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Nina. I appreciated this conversation so, so much and love the work you're doing. And I hope you inspire so many other SLPs to take Your work and run with it, so I do too. I hope that they will. So,
1: all right, well, thank you, thank you so much for having me. Um, it's it's this is my first podcast, so yeah, yay, I did it, I did, I did it, you did it.
0: To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There, you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes. And share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Special credit to Danny B. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.